Before I get started today, I want to welcome some very, very, very dear friends of ours, Charlie and Karen Hamilton from our sister church, Grace Harvest Church in Ruidoso, are visiting with us today. And so these guys have just been incredible blessings in our life for years, and we are delighted to get to spend some time with them this weekend. So glad you guys are here this morning. Good to have you. So we're continuing Thessalonians, and after everything Paul has said so far, and we've talked about a lot, I mean, we've gone through three and a half chapters at this point, and everything we've talked about, you know, we've talked about how Paul was reconnecting with the Thessalonians and how he encouraged them in their faith. In chapter 4, he's talked to them about their sexual purity. He's talked to them about um, their, the, their brotherly love for one another, and now he comes to the, the very crux of the, um, the, the letters to the Thessalonians. This is, this is the, the, the big message, and it's going to occupy a large portion of the remainder of, chapter, of uh, book one, rather, and the, the second letter to the Thessalonians as well. And this portion concerns the return of Jesus. And Paul had obviously taught some on this topic when he had been with the Thessalonians. Most likely, however, his sudden departure that we've talked about over and over prevented him from giving the Thessalonians all the information they needed to have sound understanding. There was still a lot of unanswered questions, and the result was that they were confused and they were worried. Did you notice, as we've gone through these books, or this book rather, and these chapters, these three and a half chapters, that Paul has mentioned Christ's return once in every chapter of his first letter. He's he's mentioned it at least four times at this point. Though he doesn't, uh, he doesn't has, or rather he does have much to say to them, all the things that we've covered so far, he has a lot to say to them. He doesn't seem to want to drift too far from the main point of the Thessalonians' concerns. They had questions about this. And he's going to answer them. In chapter 1, he speaks of how they have turned from idols to serve the living God for this reason. This is why they did it, to wait for his son from heaven. In chapter 2, Paul describes their little church as our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. First Thessalonians 3 ends this way in chapter 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Watch at the coming of the Lord Jesus and all his saints. You can see that this, this idea, this concept of, of the return of Christ is, is paramount in his mind. No matter what else he's talking about to this point, he's getting to this point. He needs to give them greater information. One other really interesting note about this book is that in several places in the, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, he often refers to this uh, trifecta of Christian characteristics. He talks about faith, hope, and love. And he always, though he does it in different ways, he always, within a verse or two, connects those three concepts together. Faith, hope, and love. The most obvious, of course, is 1 Corinthians 13, the quote-unquote love chapter where he says, Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. Grace of these is love. But he does that over and over in the New Testament, as a matter of fact. But in in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, watch this, that, that Timothy has brought to him word of their faith, in their love, but he does not mention hope. It's interesting. 
He probably does not mention hope since hope is running short. It's running in short supply there in Thessalonica. They don't have a lot of it. And, and it's probably because of their confusion about what is to come of them as Christians. They have a lot of questions. The Bible, however, the Bible that you're holding is full. I mean chock full of promises that Jesus, listen carefully if you don't believe this, it's full of promises that Jesus will physically return to earth someday. Full of promises. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament state that he is coming. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament either speaks directly of his coming or of the end times that surround his coming. For every biblical reference to Jesus' first coming in a manger in Bethlehem, there are eight that point to his return. Think the Bible is concerned that you know something about this? It's a lot of information. Acts 11 or 111 is one of my favorite references that speaks to the return of Christ. Jesus has risen from the grave. He's as, and he has now ascended to heaven to be with his father. His disciples and several other people are standing on the Mount of Olives and they're staring up into the sky. Can't believe what they've just seen. And in that moment, angels appear to them and they say this men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What are you standing around for? What are you gazing at? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that promise, brothers and sisters, has not been revoked. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The return of Christ is an absolute biblical guaranteed fact. It is the hope of our salvation. When everything that we know, everything in this cosmos will be made new, the redemptive work of Christ will finally be absolutely completed. Christ's return, as I said in the message last year, is the happily ever after of our story. It, it, without the return of Christ, this, this means much less. But Christ is returning He's returning. In the passage we read, or that, or that uh, Danette read to us, Paul's main concern is not to exhaustively explain all of the events of the end times. It's, it's a mistake, and many of us do it. Many others try to do it. It's a mistake to try to read a much larger scope into this text than Paul intended. Try to figure out every little detail and construct a timeline. That's a mistake to do that. See, in this passage where Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians, he's being far more pastoral than he is theological. He wants them to, to be comforted, to be encouraged more than to be informed so he didn't bring his little end times charts with all the dates and the possibilities, names, candidates for the Antichrist. He just said, he just said that Jesus is coming. What, so what is it specifically that he wants them to know? There's a few facts he wants them to know. Mostly, he wants them to know, as I just stated, that Jesus is, a fact, coming again. And that when he comes, he's coming for his church, he's coming for the elect, he's coming for those he died to ransom. Moreover, that the dead in Christ will not miss this event, but will share in a glorious triumphant resurrection with them. We're all going to do this together, folks. Also, when he comes, he wants them to know that there's going to be a magnificent reunion with both Jesus Christ himself and with the body of believers across all time. 
And that our expectation of this event should be a source of a tremendous encouragement for all who trust in Jesus. When Ginger was a little girl, she struggled for many, many years. And this is serious. This isn't a joke. She struggled for many, many years because she grew up in a church where any mention of the return of Christ was met with a veiled fear, a manipulation that if you're not ready... If you're not ready, you're screwed. And you're, and you're going to get it. The return of Christ is the, is the hammer that's waiting to fall on your head. It's the other shoe that is meant to drop. And I'm telling you, that is, is an abomination. This passage was meant, Paul says at the end, he says, encourage each other with these words. That was his intent, that you would have great joy as you sit as a believer. That may be different if you're not a believer. But as a believer, as you consider the return of Jesus Christ. The element of encouragement is vital. People do not, or or, or people rather, they do get too obsessive about the mysterious details of Christ's return. You run into them in churches, you run into them on the internet, and they miss the point that the promise of his return should infuse us with great courage to live today and to face tomorrow. There are right now implications to the return of Christ. Did you know that? Oh, but there's huge implications for tomorrow. Big implications. So apparently, Timothy has returned to Paul, not only with the good news of the Thessalonians' enduring faith and their love for one another that we've talked about over and over, but he also comes with a handful of questions about things Paul wasn't able to fully explain during his brief time there. Paul seems to have introduced to the Thessalonians during his time at least two very vitally important doctrines. The first is that when Christians die, they are ushered into the presence of God. When you die, if you are a believer, you have nothing to fear by death because you will immediately be in the presence of God. That's a good doctrine. That's a good thing to know. Second, Paul taught them that a day is coming when Christ himself will return to gather the righteous and he'll judge the wicked and he'll set up an eternal kingdom with a recreated heavens and a recreated earth. But the confusion for the Thessalonians was found between these two facts. So here you have when Christians die, they go to heaven. Here you have Jesus coming back. Their confusion was right smack in the middle of those two facts. Among their questions was a most pressing concern. What happens to believers who die... Before Jesus Christ returns, Paul responds, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. Paul was concerned about what they didn't know. He, we want you. Now listen, this is, I speak for myself, the elders, Pastor David, we, we, all of you, we want you to know this, that we want you to come to church. We want you to learn the scriptures, and way more importantly, we want you to study the scriptures for yourself. Because of this fact, theological ignorance, what you don't know, invariably leads to confusion, to worry, and to frustration. But peace, ah, sweet peace that passes all understanding, accompanies the knowledge of the truth. Look also at how he talks about those who have, quote, fallen asleep. 
When he says fallen asleep, I think most of you have picked up on this fact. He's talking about physical death, when the physical functions of the earthly body cease. The Bible often uses sleep as a metaphor for the death of believers, and there's a great promise in that fact for you and I. You may have never considered it, but the fact that Jesus said those who are dead are only sleeping, those believers who are dead, rather, are only sleeping, that's a huge promise for you. Why? If you listen to me, sleep is temporary. If you fall asleep, you wake up again. But on the contrary, in the Bible, especially books in the Psalms and the prophets, death is always in the Bible an enemy. It's indicative of judgment. It is not positive. But sleep, sleep's good. This afternoon, I'm hoping to sleep for two or three hours. And it's going to be loud and ugly, but it's going to be good. It's going to be wonderful. Don't care less what any football team is doing. I just, I just want to become reacquainted with my pillow this afternoon. Now, I want to say something here. Maybe none of you have ever considered this or been confronted by this, but if you have, especially through like groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is not to imply the false doctrine of soul sleep, meaning that when we die, we're in this unconscious state of limbo, and just kind of held there in reserve for a future date. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this. This is how Paul addressed it. Now listen carefully. He, He obviously is building to something else in this passage, but I want you to hear his words. He says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So if that's true, wouldn't the inverse be true? If we were away from the body, where would we be? We'd be at home with the Lord, wouldn't we? He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul is not fatalistic or suicidal there. He's not saying, I want this life to be over. He's saying, hey, look, I know that the the clock is ticking. I know time is winding down. He's been persecuted, all this stuff. And he he says, I am not afraid to die because I know when I die, I will finally be reunited with Christ. So don't worry about going to the grave and staying there until Jesus is ready for you. No, no, no. When you leave this life, you're going straight to be with Jesus if you put your trust in him. Paul also points to their grief, the grief that they're experiencing loss. And he states that the way a Christian grieves should be obviously uh, clearly different from how an unbeliever grieves. This doesn't have so much to do with the depth of our emotions. Christians can grieve deeply. And, and, and with, with deep sobbing, deep sighing, emotional pain, it doesn't even have to do with the expression of them, how loud or quiet, how, how, how much you, you, you have a stiff upper lip and how much you just, you just lose it. But what he's saying is when he says that their grief should be different, he's talking about the end result of our grief. Even at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. He understands the grief that is associated with death. A believer's grief is always undergirded by hope. 
always. And that's what makes it different. It's not, not the, the volume of the crying. It's, the, it's what is supporting that grief. And with a believer, what's supporting the grief is always hope. It's always that we have something that is beyond the pain that we're experiencing, looking forward to it. We have hope that our loved one is no longer suffering. We have hope in the fact that neither ourselves nor our loved ones will cease to exist in the grave. We have hope of a future bodily resurrection. And mostly, oh, mostly, we have hope of an eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. And this hope that Paul points to is based on a couple of historical facts. Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He states that believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that even in our own death, we will suffer no permanent loss, nor will we experience any lasting defeat. Jesus' death is what transforms our death into sleep. It's the fact that Jesus died. The fact that Jesus died means I don't have to die. I just get to sleep. That's good news. Great news. He experienced the penalty of death that our sins demanded so that in Christ I need have no fear of death whatsoever. But his rising, his resurrection is a sign that God, more than just the fact that he died for us, God has accepted his perfect sacrifice. And and that God has purchased us from the very jaws of death. God did that, and the the resurrection of Christ proves it, so that in him we might live. John 14, 19, Jesus is having one of his last conversations with his disciples, and he says this, yet in a little while the world will see me no more. Why? Because he's going to die, and then he's going to rise, and he's going to sin. They won't see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. It's a promise. If Jesus rises, you will rise. That's the promise of Scripture. Jesus' death for our sins and his rising from that death was was to defeat death's power for everyone who believes it. That was the goal. That was the end goal. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to Martha. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her this question, do you believe this? And I'm asking you, Do you believe this? Because if you do, it not only changes the way you die, it changes the way you live. If you believe this, He is the resurrection and the life. Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, For to this end, in other words, this is the whole reason behind it all, for this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Your ticker might stop before Jesus returns, but guess what? Jesus is still Lord. The Thessalonians likely believed that those who died were with Jesus. They understood this to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But they wanted to know if their loved ones would miss out on the physical resurrection because their spirits were already with them in heaven. Would they be a part of that vindication that will happen for all believers at the end? 
So Paul comforts them with these words. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul says this is an instruction, or this instruction is a word from the Lord. Those are powerful, powerful words that we must never be flippant with. He says this is a word from the Lord. We don't know if Paul means that this is something that Jesus said that maybe wasn't recorded in the Gospels or if it was something that was revealed to him directly by the Holy Spirit. But either way, what he is saying has the gravity of God's holy word. And to us, on this side of it, of it being revealed, it's scripture. It is, it is the truth of God's word. And the reason I'm saying that is because when Paul is describing what's about to happen or what is, what is promised to all of us, we can't say, well, that's one man's opinion. No, that's the truth of God's word. That's what he wants you to know. He's saying this is, this is a word from the Lord. His message is that those who have died while believing in Christ, whether from sickness or from old age or even the persecution that is raging in Thessalonica, it, it, no matter how they died, they will not be edged out of the glory of the resurrection at the end. They're going to share in it. This, the beautiful point of all of this, this is that all of God's good kingdom plans, all of God's good kingdom plans include all of God's people. Nobody's getting left out of anything. All of God's plan includes all of God's people. Whether we walked with Jesus 2,000 years ago, whether we served as an apostle, whether we lived through those terrible dark ages, or whether we're a modern-day saint just being sanctified by the Holy Spirit day by day, we will all share in the world to come, all of us. Now, Paul tells them how this is going to look, and this gets really exciting. Buckle your seatbelt. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God physically and visibly Christ will repair will appear in the heavens suddenly with no advance warning being given his appearance will be will be preceded by three sounds each with a distinct meaning the bible says that the lord will descend with a cry of command this signifies authority I like that It signifies authority. Three times in Scripture, Jesus commanded dead people to rise. Three times. He didn't say, please. He didn't say, if it's it's okay, if it fits into your plans. He did not request that they do so. He commanded that they will rise. King James says that he will descend with a shout. And so when you, when you combine a cry of command with a shout, I imagine that with his great thunderous voice, he will awaken all the people who have slept in him for thousands of years, and they will rise to attention and to worship in a moment. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? When that shout pierces the atmosphere. But we're also told that he will descend with the voice of an archangel. In the Roman era, when a great man or a conquering king would enter the cities, the towns, the villages that were subject to him, they would always have a herald to announce their arrival. 
And Jesus' second coming to the earth will be announced by the voice of angels just as it was in the beginning. Just as his arrival in Bethlehem was announced by angels. Angels are going to show up and they are going to point to their true king. And they are, their voices are going to fill the, the, all of the universe as they say the king is here. The king has arrived. Make ready for the king. Lastly. We're told that Jesus will come with the blast of a trumpet. In Scripture, both the appearance of the Lord and victories won have been signaled by the blowing of trumpets. Let me tell you something. This will be the ultimate appearance of the Lord. When God descended upon Mount Sinai, the sound of an unseen trumpet filled the air. When Jesus Christ returns for his church. There's going to be trumpets blowing, folks. But there's more to that. I said it also accompanied wars that were won, victories that were taken. And there's never been a victory like this one. Never. No war upon the end of that war has ever compared to the end of this war. When that trumpet blows, it's a sign that sin and death and the powers of hell and all the power of the devil have been defeated once and for all forever. That's what that trumpet signified. The war is over. It's done. It's through. But Paul answers the unique concern of the Thessalonians when he assures them, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now those disembodied spirits who have been enjoying unbroken fellowship with Jesus in heaven, at this point they're going to receive their final inheritance. I'm telling you, if you're on the last leg of life, you've got to get really excited about this. Because I've already told you that when, when the clock Strike zero, you're going straight to be with Jesus. But that's not the end of your story. Not even close. You'll enjoy unbroken fellowship with Jesus in heaven, but you're going to get a final inheritance, a perfect, resurrected, unfailing, glorified, yet physical body to enjoy and with which to serve the Lord with gladness for all eternity. This is not some Casper the Friendly Ghost deal, as I always say. This is a real body, a physical body, but glorified body. Because Paul had said earlier that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, and yet here he says that the dead in Christ will rise first. The implication is that the spirits of the saints that are with the Lord will descend with him and return to their physical bodies for an amazing resurrection. And you might say, pragmatically you might have as morbid of an imagination as i do and you might say well what if they were eaten by sharks what if they died thousands of years ago and have just turned into a handful of dust we know scientifically the matter isn't ever destroyed it's just relocated and redistributed so do you really sit there and imagine that it would be too difficult for the one who created you from scratch to call all of your atoms together from the four corners of the earth and recreate you for that glorious moment. I say it would not be. You will rise. 
I hope that if I have not fallen asleep at the time of Christ's return, I I hope, this is a selfish wish, I admit it, but I hope that I'm driving down MLK right by the city of Lubbock Cemetery. And in that moment, before the next step of this process, I get to see those graves fly open and the, and the, 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 the bodies and the souls of the saints reunite. What a great sight that would be. Wouldn't you like to see that? This isn't some scary Night of the Living Dead zombie stuff. This is, this is glorious. But that's not all. What about those of us who will still be serving God here on earth at the time of his return? He says, then, dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the air. That's a huge statement. Just kind of soak that in for a minute. Let me read it to you again. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. After the saints that have gone before are resurrected and rejoin Christ in the air, then you and I, if we're alive at that moment, will soar through the air to meet both them and our Savior in the sky. Wow. Incredible. As those who have died won't miss the second coming, those who are living won't miss out on the resurrection either. For all all God's plans apply to all God's people. We won't miss out. Paul talks about what will happen to those who remain in greater detail when he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't be dead at this time. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, here's that trumpet again. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be, rise, will be raised imperishable. And we, who are alive, shall be changed. That same body that we witnessed those disembodied spirits get as their final inheritance. All of a sudden, you're going to look down, driving your car on the okay, and you go, whoa, what just happened? I'm a brand new man. I'm a brand new woman. Sin, death. All that stuff has lost its grip on me. Whoa, where am I going? In that chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes this this process as the perishable, putting on imperishable. How many of you over 40 have realized you are perishable? I have not found it yet. I need to get Ginger to do a closer inspection. There's an expiration date somewhere stamped here. Because I am winding down. I am wearing out. I say over 40 because you under 40 are as well. You just have not figured it out yet. When it hurts to get dressed in the morning after you turn 40, you'll figure it out. (laughs) Amen over 40 people. Getting dressed should not be painful. But here we are. Paul says the perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. We will be the same in this sense. We'll be the same in this sense, in this sense alone, that we're going to still remain, or we'll maintain rather our identities. I'm going to look and I'm going to say, it's Shermon. It's the resurrected Shermon. It's Katie. It's Danette. I'm going to recognize that. We'll be the same in that sense. I'll know you. You'll know me. 
but will also be completely different. Completely. Death, sickness, decay, sorrow, even sin, all of those things are going to be things of the past. And Paul says that this wonderful state of things will be wonderfully permanent. So will we always be with the Lord. This is not a temporary revival, folks. This is the new state of things. Perfect bodies with a perfect Lord in a perfect forever. What a great promise. Romans promises us, chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is true this very day. But a day is coming when nothing will be able to separate us from his physical face-to-face presence, not even our own fears, not our own anxieties, not our own sins, we will finally be free to do what we were created to do, to worship and enjoy God forever. Finally free. If you ever, if you love Jesus Christ and you've come into this place ever on a Sunday trying to worship with this team and your mind is racing a thousand miles and you can't focus because of some problem or some ailment or some bill, that day will end and you will be finally free with no hindrance, no obstacle to lift your hands and open your mouth in unending worship of the God who loves you and gave himself for you. We'll have all eternity to hear him, to learn of him, to discover what Paul calls the unsearchable depths of his mercy, his love, unhindered, unashamed. In addition, we're going to be reunited with all the people who who we have loved and also have trusted Christ and, and made him Savior and Lord. We're also going to meet many other people from all nations, all tribes, not to mention all generations, who will instantly, we're going to instantly have a deep forever love for them as brothers and sisters. Think about that. We talked about the missions offering. There are people that you will never meet that the money you gave last week are going to be, that money is going to be instrumental in bringing them to know Jesus Christ. And someday they're going to see you face to face and say, wow. Wow, all the secrets will be revealed back then. They'll say, you put 50 bucks, you put 100 bucks, you put 1,000 bucks in the offering, and look, I'm here. Thank you. What an incredible day that will be. You just never know. And I suspect, kind of laugh about this, but I suspect that we're all going to be amazed, every one of us. We'll also rejoice that all of those people we see there that we didn't even expect to be there with us. Every teacher I had in school till about the 10th grade is, that made it, makes it to heaven is going to see me walk in and go, no way. <laughs> Kid, no. Come on. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. We're going to see the depth and the width and the, and the height of God's mercy when we see who comes walking in with us. That's going to be amazing. People that hurt us, offended us, and we struggled with with the hard work of forgiving them, and they're going to be right there with us. There's not going to be any of that bitterness of the past. All of that's going to be washed away in the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be amazing. 
Paul concludes by instructing the Thessalonians to encourage one another with these words. Some translations say to comfort one another. These verses, I said this at the beginning, weren't put in the Bible to give us some mystery to unlock or another point of contention to argue about. They were placed here to comfort us and to encourage us. And I hope that that is how the people of Northridge Life Church will choose to use them. When your believing loved one dies, isn't it a comfort to know that a day is coming when they shall rise? When you struggle day to day with chronic pain or a terminal disease, how encouraging is it to know that we will all be changed? When your heart is broken, how does it help you to realize that Jesus Christ is on his way to mend hearts, to wipe away tears? When you see the terrible injustice in this world, doesn't it strengthen you to believe that a righteous judge is coming? And he's coming to balance every single scale. Nothing will be left undone. The words I read to you every week before we share communion together, I'll ask our communion helpers to come. The words I share with you every week, they have a a great prompting to remember the end of our story. And it has a reminder as well of what keeps us pressing forward. Paul says this, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In this way, the Lord's table powerfully reminds us both to look back, be grateful for what the Lord has done for us on the cross, But it also is a reminder to us to look forward and be grateful for what he will do for us when he appears in the clouds and makes us all brand spanking new. As you come this week, I'll ask you to rise now if you would stand with me. I want you to do something. Some of you, quite honestly, it's okay, I'm not... not, poking you. I just want you to think about it this week. Some of you may never think about the return of the Lord. You're just kind of just kind of wrestling with whatever you're wrestling with and, and slugging through whatever you have to slug through, and you forget that this isn't all there is. So as you come this week, I want to ask you a minute. In fact, if you would, just close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to think for just a minute. Be alone with Jesus right there in this room full of 100 people. Just think about this. Take a moment and think about that day. The descriptions that Paul has given us, the, the, the weak um, way that I described what Paul has given us. Think about that day. What do you imagine that it's going to be like? What do you think it's going to be like for this world? What do you think it's going to be like for your family? What do you think it's going to be like for you as an individual? Some of you in here are very creative thinkers, and I'm telling you, no matter what you're imagining right now, you have no idea. You have no idea. It's going to be better than you could have ever imagined. What is the change 
that you're hoping for? Do you want to see the end of injustice? Do you want for yourself a forever healed body? Do you want a restored mind? Do you want renewed emotions, emotions that have been battered to, to come into balance? I hope that at the very least you're all expecting the joy that will accompany the, the removal of the possibility of all sin. Don't, don't stop. Just think about that for a minute. Now just to the Lord, take another moment. Take a moment and affirm your belief in Christ's sure return by considering all the aspects of your life. Think about it. Think about your life. Look over the landscape of your life. Consider all the good that's in your life right now. Consider all the rotten, the bad that's in your life right now. Look at it all, good and bad. Consider your hope, your dreams, your joys, your disappointments, your successes, your failures. And as you're doing that, just let that, let the full scope of your life just kind of swirl around you for just a minute. Think about it. And together, I want you to look up on the screen. We're going to pray in unison the beautiful five-word prayer of benediction that we find at the end of the book of Revelation. You ready? One, two, three. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Say it again. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. One more time. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Even so, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for your promise of return. You have not abandoned us. You have not left us here. You have not left us to our own sickness, our own sin, our own death. You haven't left us, God. You're coming. Some of us will experience that day from heaven coming with you, returning to our bodies here on earth. Some of us will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But Lord, however, Lord, our promise is that we will be with you forever. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that... that the truth of your coming would have tremendous impact on our lives. That the way we experience loss and, and pain 
and disappointment would be tempered by the way that we understand and believe and long for your return. And God, the way we experience the temporal joys and successes and wins that we have down here would be tempered by the knowledge of your return. God, we thank you for the reminder of your body broken for us, your blood poured out for us that makes all of this possible. You have redeemed us for your return by your brokenness on the cross. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you didn't remain dead, but you rose again. And your promise of rising is our promise of rising. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Be near to us as we as we feast on you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may come. Sunset. 